Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 15th of February. Coming up on the program is the SANDF overextended when it comes to foreign mission deployment. State-owned enterprise management under one roof. Can the concept work? Service delivery in Swanee is seemingly worsening. How close are we to widening the SME funding gap? And are we heading for an aggressive global rate-cutting cycle? There is growing concern over a new bill that state-owned enterprises, most of them in dire trouble, be transferred to a single state asset management holding company instead of retaining them under the embattled Department of Public Enterprises. A view now from Olga Konstantatos, who is head of credit at Future Growth. And firstly, Olga, what specific criteria or strategy, in your opinion, could be established for determining which SOEs are transferred to this holding company? I think that it's important for us to understand what the, you know, well, I think the shareholder itself needs to set out what criteria are going to be used for the state-owned entities that will fall under this Holdco subsidiary. The list as published in the second draft of this bill seems to indicate a variety of SOEs across a number of sectors. Some are financially, operationally, and have governance challenges, and others are, you know, are, are not as challenged. There are some that have a developmental mandate, potentially, and some also that have a mixed developmental and commercial mandate. And I think it's not necessarily up to us to say what the strategy should be in terms of which entities should be transferred over, but rather for the shareholder to tell us what their criteria is going to be in making these transfers mm-hmm. and the outcomes they aim to achieve. I mean, at the end of the day, we think that what is the outcome we all want? We want efficient, functional state-owned entities. We want them that fulfill their mandate, that are operationally and financially sustainable, and that are not a drain on our fiscus or on our economy. And I guess we're just questioning whether transferring these named entities into a new holdco, whether that actually achieves the stated aims. And we think this legislation needs some further amendment in order to go uh, towards that goal. So let's talk about amendments in just a moment. But conceptually, do you think it's a bad idea? Look, it is the practice of some other countries around the globe that have done this. I think that it's not a bad idea to concentrate some of the operational oversight within one entity. I think some of the challenges that we've had with our SOEs is that oversight is scattered across a line ministry sometimes with some oversight from National Treasury with some other departments added in. And so it's not always clear to us who is making the decisions, who's providing the right level of oversight. And there have also been conflicting requirements, you know, issues by the various um, ministries that have historically been in charge of some of the SOEs. And so 
to the extent that this may provide for an aligned view and a consistent view and clarity around who is you know, who is actually in control, then that is a good thing. I guess the concern side of that equation is to say that the concentration of that power can sometimes be problematic unless there are appropriate guardrails and guidelines in place to limit what could be the abuse of that concentration of power. And let me pick up on that. That's exactly the point I want to raise with you. Given concerns around political interference in a concept like this, it would be important, would it not, uh, to implement additional safeguards to minimize political influence and overexertion of authority. 100%, Jeremy, and that's exactly um, what we think, where we think this bill maybe falls a little bit short. So this version two is a slight improvement on this front um, as regards version one. So this version two, so it's positive in that there is now a nominations process for recommending new board members. The previous version didn't have that and gave the president the sole right to make those appointments with no guidelines or input. So this version is a slight improvement. There is this nominations process outside the presidency that recommends appointments. But where we think it falls short is that the president is not obliged to follow these, nor is he required to give a reason for not following the recommendations, and nor is there an obligation on him to act reasonably in making his decision. And so while there is external input into the decision, there's no obligation really on the presidency to act on those recommendations. And so there is still the scope for um, inappropriate political Mm. interference, we feel. And that would be a key amendment that uh, that you would need to, to, to look at. These are all complex entities, you would agree with me. Would it not be difficult for one single company to exercise what is ostensibly specialist insight or oversight that is needed? Absolutely. And I think it goes to the first point or the first question around the various industries and the types of companies with their different mandates that are listed as, you know, potentials for inclusion. So it's, you know, it's Transnet, it's the post office, it's ESCOM, it's SAA, it's, it's you know, across a variety of industries. And, you know, if you think of it in a corporate sense, it would be like having a conglomerate corporate holding company that has subsidiary interests in basically every aspect of the economy. And so there is a question around concentrating that power in a hold board, what level of specialist skills are needed there. And usually what happens in the corporate world, so non-SOE world, is that that power is devolved down to the subsidiary company board. So they may be a conglomerate holding company, but they would devolve quite a lot of power to the subsidiary board that actually knows that industry best. So let's say if it's in airways or, or logistics or whatever, the board of that particular subsidiary company are the specialists in that field and would be best placed to make decisions for that subsidiary. That's what would happen in the corporate world. What we think may be happening or is at risk of happening with this legislation is that the power to make decisions for that particular subsidiary company, be it in logistics or whatever, goes up a level to the holding company. And so we would question whether... You know, what do they know better? What do those directors at the Holtco company um, level know more than what the actual directors of that the, the subsidiary company know? And, and we would argue that the subsidiary company directors are probably best placed to be making the decisions for that subsidiary. Um, and so that is potentially a problem as we see it. And just a final one. Um, oversight is one thing, but uh, any new entity has surely got to ensure uh, reform and also commercial success. Absolutely. And so I think that's the one of the problems is that the challenges that our SOEs have faced are not just around 
their ownership structure or their oversight structure. They are very significant operational financial challenges that exist at very many of them. And some of those challenges are as basic as kind of financial guardrails and financial controls, mm. the way money gets spent, value for money, capital allocation decisions, etc. Um, and and you can't, you know, you can't, you can legislate for some of that, but not all of that. The key to do that is to actually operationally reform the entities um, themselves, to put the right people in place, to make the right decisions, to have the right KPI and to be measuring targets appropriately. And legislating it kind of at two levels above doesn't necessarily go all the way. So it's potentially part of the solution if it's done properly, but it doesn't take away the need to operationally reform these entities Mm. at the actual level of the operation. One senses a long road to hoe in this particular respect. Uh, (laughs) Olga Konfantatos, thank you very much indeed. Head of Credit at Future Growth. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to focus on local government now and the party Rise Mzanzi says it's deeply concerned about the ongoing and recurring service delivery problems in the city of Tswane as well as an inability to spend funds allocated to service delivery programs. More now from the party and from uh, Voyiswa Ramachopa. Uh, Welcome and thank you very much indeed. What's the biggest problem here? Thank you for having me on your show. Um, As you've stated, we are deeply concerned about the state of affairs um, in the city of Tuane, which is not only limited to the city of Tuane. Um, we've seen similar levels of um, chaos, um, poor administration, poor governance, and of course, underspending of capital budgets um, in the city of Joburg as well, and um, other issues in the city of Ekuruleni. And what this really points to is just an inability of the coalition governments and the, co- and the parties within the coalition governments to focus on driving consensus to the benefit of the citizens that they serve. Instead, they're more focused on internal squabbling um, and, 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 and not actually executing on their mandate, which is to, to deliver services. I mean, just to give you a sense, um, Jeremy, of the quantums we're talking about here, National Treasury now um, has, has, has effectively written a letter to City of Tswane um, threatening to withdraw 630 million rand worth of capital grants. Now, this is supposed to be used for for a range of things, from um, urban um, development, uh, public transport, uh, proper, uh, project preparation, and various other service delivery matters. And in a city like Tswane that is so besieged by infrastructure underdevelopment mm-hmm. and poor maintenance, um, and is so you know completely debilitated by issues such as um, waste removal. I mean, the, the, the place has become a, a rubbish dump because of poor waste removal. All right. um, you'll, people you'll are literally you'll, drinking poison you'll, water. You'll agree with me that uh, not just in Tswane, but around the country, coalitions are becoming a staple in South African governance. Are you also suggesting Absolutely. now that uh, this is going to be the new norm? Absolutely not. And this is the most unfortunate part. You know, South Africa has 257 municipalities, of which more than 80 are governed as coalitions. and But the problem is that there are a few coalitions, such as the ones I've named, which are particularly unstable and because of their economic significance, of course, have far-reaching consequences. This is not a testament to the to the um, to the failure of coalitions as a as a form of governance, but rather to a failure of leadership. The individuals that are part of these coalitions, the parties that are part of these coalitions are unwilling and unable to provide that the, the requisite I leadership. accept your argument, but by extension, it is a failure of coalition as well. 
It's not, Jeremy, and this is what I'm saying. I'm saying this. Coalitions actually are very beneficial. As we know, they enable, um, you know, minority voices and a broad uh, level of representation for different sectors of society to have their views represented. It is the responsibility of the elected representatives to ensure that they can drive consensus and um, arrive at a political program and a service delivery program that ultimately centers the citizens. What we end up seeing is political um, bartering for Mm. positions, um, a lot of finger pointing, zero accountability, both within the coalitions and with the parties outside of those coalitions. Right. And so here, no, no, doubt then, even, no doubt then Raisa Mazanzi has applied its mind to specific actions that coalitions can take to move beyond political squabbles. Uh, what are they? Look, I think there are, there are two levels of answer. The, the simple answer is that we need to bring in and vote in better quality leaders. Um, And and we've been quite, I mean, it sounds so simplistic, but the reality is that this is a failure of leadership. That what we are witnessing is not a failure of coalitions, it's a failure of leadership. And unless we use our votes appropriately to put in leaders who we actually, um, who are actually willing to drive the objectives that we are seeking, we don't get the outcomes. The second factor that I think must must be named is the role also of provincial government. You know, uh, the the, it, it, the coalitions, of course, um, are, let me say, this is new territory for us. Um, but the provincial government and the provincial executive also has a role to play in stabilizing the coalitions and ensuring um, uh, uh, non-interruption of services. And this is mandated by the constitution. It is part of their provincial governance framework and so part of you're, you're suggesting that uh, the Gauteng Premier, for instance, wades into an issue like Tswani with a big stick? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is part of his um, mandate as, a, as the elected executive authority. And instead of actually doing what he was supposed to do, um, what you end up seeing is, is, is the, the Premier's office and of course, um, the, the, the ANC government, mm. which is feeding this fire, you know, and, and instead uh, creating uncertainty over the nature and stability rather than solving the problem. They are well within their mandate. The constitution gives them the ability to step in um, and, and clearly defines what the range of issues are and in the manner in which they can intervene. Mm, but often they should it be can issuing be... Those Often it can be very politically messy. I'm out of time, but I, I do get the gist of your argument and, uh, and thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, a perpetual solution to our growth problems in South Africa is the potential and I guess the buoyancy of SMEs, small and medium enterprises. And my next guest says increased development support and collaboration with government can potentially create a more enabling fundraising environment uh, for local businesses. Sanjay Soni is a member of the South African Startup Act Movement Steering Committee, and he joins us now. So let's get straight to the funding if we can. Why is there such a significant gap? Is it simply not having confidence in the concept? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Good afternoon to your listeners, and thanks for having me on your show this afternoon. So, Jeremy, I think the the real issue around the funding gap is uh, the environment and, and I guess whether it's conducive for us to attract investment, not only locally, but also from, I guess, foreign sources to want to invest in the startup and early stage of our I guess, our country and our economy. 
So why are they unable to do that, or why are they why are they unwilling to do that? I wonder. So Jeremy, for me, I think it comes down to three or four things. I think uh, the first thing I want to chat about is in terms of our exchange, in terms of our exchange control approvals. Uh, the process is quite laborious. Uh, investors bring money into the country. It's not the easiest thing to get money out of the country. So that's the first thing. Secondly, in terms of skills shortage, uh, work permits and bringing in some of the necessary skills, uh, that in itself can be a very time-consuming process. Uh, Home Affairs, by way of example, there is currently a huge backlog in terms of the 90-day visa. And I guess the fourth thing is, in the country, I guess startups and SMEs are seen as perhaps the most risky part of an investment portfolio. And as a country that's very conservative, not enough money is going to that segment of the marketplace. So, Sanjay, all of these issues, and they are well-trodden issues, are long-term problems. It suggests to me that uh, SMEs are going to continue to find themselves hamstrung to the detriment of the South African economy unless something changes radically. Absolutely, Jeremy. And I guess for me, there are possibly three or four things that both, both the government and the private sector can do. I think the first thing is in terms of how do we actually try and alleviate the burdensome around all these processes that we have in place? So for me, that's the first thing. Secondly, I don't think there are sufficient tax incentives available to allow startups to start a business and equally so to allow investors to want to invest in the startup sector. Um, I guess the third thing is corporates do have a significant role to play in the marketplace, but a lot of the corporate funding goes towards more established parts of the economy. Which is understandable. Which is understandable from a risk perspective. And if you look at aspects around the NDP 2030 goals, uh, aspirations are that the startup and early stage part of the ecosystem is is, I guess, going to contribute up to 90% of new employment. However, very little funding ends up in that particular segment. So are there strategies or is there a different philosophy that can be employed by SMEs to de-risk startup investments? Great question, Jeremy. So for me, I think it comes down to two or three things. Uh, The first thing from a startup perspective, uh, startups need to spend a lot more time understanding their product and or solution and its fit in the marketplace. So they need to do a lot of work up front. Number two, they need to be invested in their businesses. Uh, They can't treat it as a part-time hobby. They've got to actually be boots in all in and actually do the necessary work to allow themselves as a business to succeed. The thing is, they've got to do a fair amount of research in terms of what's happening in the market, not only locally, but where are the expansion opportunities to grow their business, not only on the continent, but also into other parts of the world. Beyond venture capital, do they also need to be thinking about alternative funding mechanisms? Jeremy, absolutely. So if you think about venture capital traditionally, venture capital fund early stage businesses. In South Africa, there is a need for us to fund businesses at an even earlier stage. So there are obviously two or three forms of additional funding. I guess the first obvious one that one could think about is in terms of what is the type of support and incentives that government can provide to support SMEs? So I guess that's the first thing. Secondly, if you create tax incentives to allow the more wealthy individuals 
to invest in the startup and early stage part of the ecosystem, it then helps them to actually manage, uh, I guess, the overall investment mm. philosophy. And the third area is in terms of angel investing. We've seen a significant uprising of angel investing globally. South Africa, it's a growing sector. And these are individuals that take their own personal capital at risk and back an entrepreneur in terms of their product and service offering. But it is a vicious cycle because often uh, the same, they've got to close that same loop uh, that, uh, that, that that venture capital funding is also uh, experiencing. Uh, Sanjay Soni, thank you very much indeed from the South African Startup Act movement. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. The South African National Defence Force writes Darren Olafia from SA Defence Review is increasingly overextended. He goes on to say too many foreign deployed personnel despite years of budget and staff cuts and that is sharply reducing capacity. So what impact is this having on our broader defence capability? Darren, a very warm welcome and no doubt you've seen the statement that uh, was put out uh, today from the SANDF headlined uh, Defence Force soldiers uh, deployed in SADC mission in the DRC injured during an indirect fire. And I guess that's a metaphor or almost emblematic of the problem that you want to talk about. Yes, certainly. Um, actually, the headline's incorrect there. Um, two members were actually killed in action and the further three were wounded in action. So I'm not sure why the headline that they sent out referred only to injuries. No, it's extraordinary. But, but, but nonetheless, it's still a problem, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is entirely foreseen. Um, and it's something that was warned about for some time. Uh, effectively, once, I mean, Sargon troops have been in the DRC for many, many years as part of the UN mission. Now, being part of the UN mission means you have some level of protection already um, just by virtue of being a, a UN mission. Uh, you know, uh, armed groups are a little bit less likely to take you on. They still will. I mean, there, there was one base overrun in Sinaliki some years ago. But uh, in general, there, there's, a bit of, there's a bit more hesitance to you know, attack in forces um, by the various rebel groups, including obviously most importantly and most dangerously M23. Now being there as part of a of a separate um, static mission working entirely alongside the the DRC military, uh, I mean effectively there's no such umbrella protection. So SNDF troops are going to come under you know, full targeting, full fire from these rebel groups, and I mean M23 is phenomenally well equipped. It is being funded and supplied by Rwanda, and supported by Rwanda. So it isn't, you know, a a uh, two-bit uh, no-hope uh, rebel group. Mm. It, it has some c- capabilities. At the same time, the force deployed by South Africa is relatively small. I mean, it's um, currently about, I think, one and a half thousand troops. It's authorized to go up to about 2,900 in total. But there's no air support. There's no rifle helicopters supporting it. There's no, I mean, there's almost no RXs available for it. Uh, there's no UAVs. And importantly, relating to today's issue, there's there's no um, protection at the bases against rockets, artillery, and mortars. Now, the SNDF does have the capability that can help with that. Uh, in its 35mm guns, these sky shields, um, uh, fire control radars, and the um, ahead ammunition, but those haven't been deployed. 
So effectively, the troops are, are highly vulnerable. They're in a mission that is open-ended, uh, very difficult, very dangerous, very risky, and they are undercooked for it. Same how time, how difficult, Darren, is, yeah. how, how difficult is it for South Africa then to pull back on these uh, obviously onerous obligations that it has? I mean, in the case of um, these two missions in Mozambique and the DRC, I think it's entirely South Africa's own. Well, I mean, we effectively are driving a lot of it. So it seems because South Africa is driving it, it must take on more, more of the burden. But in my mind, this is poor foreign policy and poor diplomacy, because ultimately you can't deploy more than you actually can support. And the issue is right now is that the SANDF is deploying far more than can support in the current budget. I mean, if you look at, if you add up the numbers of SANDF troops currently deployed, authorized to be deployed this year, you come to a figure of over 12,400, which on the force, the size of the SANDF is far too high. I mean, that, that gives you a, a very unhealthy deployment ratio. Um, it means you are forcing troops to, to, to deploy over and over and over again in the time period. You're not getting time for, for rest and recovery or for, for proper training mm-hmm. or debriefing or all the rest. So this is going to cause a lot of, of additional strain on the SNDF. Plus, of course, the SNDF is no longer recruiting as many as it used to. So because of budget cuts, the number of troops being re- re- um, re- recruited has dropped massively, meaning that the soldiers still in the Defence Force um, are retiring, either retiring or resigning without being replaced, or they're aging into the roles which makes them even less able to handle these kind of sustained Mm. deployments. Well, it is a very disturbing turn of events. Uh, Darren Olafia, thank you very much indeed from SA Defence Review. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And let me finish with this. With global interest rates at close to 17-year highs, conservative investors are benefiting from generous yield environments. The consensus view is that rates have peaked, but markets have dialed back their expectations on when the U.S. Fed is going to start a rate-cutting cycle. More now from Adam Furlan, who's portfolio manager at 91. And Adam, firstly, are we likely, in your opinion, to see an aggressive rate-cutting cycle ahead? Uh, no, not expecting to see an aggressive rate cutting cycle. The reason for that is we're talking about the U.S. economy here. And the reason for that being the Fed and what they are seeing in the U.S. economy is a very strong economy at the moment. So whilst they've had inflation, uh, progress on inflation, pr- predominantly from goods prices, they're also seeing labor market rebalancing, but remaining quite strong, low levels of unemployment, activity holding up very well. And, and therefore, they can normalize policy, adjust policy lower to keep real rates at the same level because inflation has come down. But um, we don't expect a recession. We don't expect a significant slowdown in growth. And therefore, um, that, that means that they don't need to aggressively reduce rates. They can do it at quite a gradual pace. Having said that, though, investors then, what do they need to start doing in terms of adjusting their strategy to capitalize on any movement in this direction? So investors in global markets, what we're seeing priced in at the moment is about 90 basis points of rate cuts for the year in the U.S., And um, what we may eventually see is that not being realized. So we expect three cuts from the U.S. over the course of the year, but that is very data dependent. There's obviously risks that labor markets do crack or we do see the regional banking crisis that has been quite contained start to expand a bit further. 
But um, in that regard, if, if things play out as we expect and we do have a very gradual rate cutting cycle, that is still a very good environment for global risky assets, things like equities, things like global credit and things like global fixed income. You're actually expecting a sort of Goldilocks scenario where the Fed is becoming slightly more accommodative, allowing a bit more liquidity into the market, reducing interest rates. And at the same time, you don't expect growth to fall off a cliff. So uh, assets that are correlated to growth, um, to US growth especially, are likely to perform well. So I think what an investor should be thinking about is maybe the difference in what's happening in global economies. Because whilst we're seeing a very strong picture in the US, we're seeing less so in Europe and the UK and other parts of the world. So I think for us in our Global Diversified Income Fund, for example, we're sticking more of our duration in economies that are weakening and will need accommodation faster, like the UK and like Europe, as opposed to the US. So you're very focused on that. Are there other geographic preferences then that you're looking at? Geographically, I can talk to emerging markets. Mm. And once again, it is a very nice environment for emerging markets. It's a very conducive environment for emerging market growth. The risk you have is the Chinese recovery continues to stall as it has for quite some time. And however, we are still in the in that environment where global growth is likely to be better than expected as people shift their expectations from a recession in 2024 further out and, and moving towards a soft landing and even better growth expectations. That is a good environment for emerging markets. And with global interest rates falling, that will likely drive inflows into the emerging market environment. And how are you factoring an inflation outlook then into that over the next 12 to 18 months, which is important? Over the next 12 to 18 months, we expect inflation to continue to fall. However, I mean, we've recently had a um, CPI print out of the US. That's a prize to the upside. And, and that was predominantly due to rentals and housing inflation. So whilst we've had very solid progress on inflation, we've seen the last six months, if you look at six months of annualized month-on-month prints, inflation in the U.S. has been running at 2% on a shorter shorter horizon. However, on a one-year outlook, it's still above 3 the Fed focuses on core PCE, which which applies a lower weight to housing. So um, they're less concerned about that housing inflation in their targets. However, what we see is because of the strong activity um, and the strong labor market that we're seeing in the U.S., we think that services inflation, the part of the basket that hasn't come down as quickly as goods inflation has, um, we think that services inflation may prove a bit sticky and therefore people's expectations that um, we will have U.S. inflation back at 2% by the end of the year may be a bit premature. We think maybe it becomes a bit sticky in the in the 25 to 3% level and takes a bit longer to get back, which is why we actually expect the Fed to be slower than, than people's expectations in reducing interest rates. If I shift that story over to emerging markets, I think the one big difference we're seeing in and and have seen in emerging markets over over the inflation cycle that we've just come through is that i mean em was was somewhat less um impacted through very very severe fiscal policy very strong fiscal stimulus and um, because of that em didn't have that massive services inflation and therefore has had a, a better experience than we've seen in the likes of the major economies 
in this experience and and what has what has caused um, emerging market inflation to remain quite sticky has been um, food inflation uh, food inflation over the second half of last year picked up quite quite substantially and that drove em inflation higher we're now seeing that moderating and and we expect inflation in emerging economies to come down quite nicely and that's a very comprehensive assessment adam furlan from 91 thank you very much indeed And just before we wrap things up, uh, let me return to our online poll Wednesday. Uh, Warnings were sounded on the program of increased pre-election social unrest. I asked you if it was likely, not at all, or scaremongering. And close on three quarters of our respondents said this is very likely. Today, and it relates to our lead story uh, this morning, uh, SOE management, state-owned enterprise management, to be merged under one entity. I'd like your view on that. Is it clever? Is it foolish? or are they not worth saving? Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter, also on our LinkedIn page. I'll bring you the results on the program tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.